Welcome to the latest podcast from the Recruitment and Employment Confederation. We're bringing you the latest updates and insights from the world of recruitment to help you navigate these challenging times. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our latest edition of REC's Talking Recruitment podcast. I'm Kate Shoesmith. I'm the Director of Sales and Marketing here at the REC. It's mine and my team's job to talk to our members, meaning we have a great overview of what's happening in recruitment right now. And this podcast is a brilliant way of being able to share some of those findings with you out there. We're busy preparing for our entirely virtual conference, uh, REC 2020, that's coming up on the 8th of September, where we're planning to talk about business and strategy. We've got some great names joining us uh, on the client side for people like PwC, CBI and IBM, um, plus many of the experts in our own recruitment sector um, from member companies, uh, organisations like TRN and Hungli from Recruiting Brain Food. We've got 650 recruitment and HR professionals booked already, and there's still time to register. The easiest way to find the booking details is if you go to our LinkedIn or Twitter profiles, and if you look for Rec 2020 on the 8th of September, you'll find the link to book from there. So the conference will be our chance to explore how COVID-19 has affected our jobs, our business performance, um, and most importantly, the path back to success. And in today's Talking Recruitment podcast, we want to take a look at one of those sectors that has been hit most fundamentally and most directly by the pandemic, and that's the health and care sector, and to really explore recruitment's response to it. So to that end, I'm really pleased that we are joined by James Rook, who is the Managing Director of Sanctuary Personnel. Sanctuary Personnel is one of the leading suppliers across the health, social care and social workspace, having been built up from quite small beginnings when it was founded in 2006. James is also the chair of our REC Health and Social Care Sector Group. Welcome, James. Thank you very much. That's a very kind intro. James, You've obviously been uh, working in this business for a number of years now. And I thought maybe to get us started today that it would be really useful to share with us a bit about how you found leading your business through this time versus how it was when you were a relatively new startup, um, having set up the business in 2006 and then only to be hit by a global recession a couple of years later when the 2008-9 financial crash happened. What did you do to get through that? Is there anything that you feel that is similar to this time um, and that you've learned from that time that's helped you uh, with today's environment? Previous recessions will, will be very different to this one. And Previously, we, we found that during recession, we've been able to adapt and adapt to our clients' needs. Very sadly, particularly in social care, their austerity and um, recession tend to cause some greater issues, particularly in the sort of social work arena, and just greater social problems. Um, there tends to be an increase in, in a lot of negative activity around substance misuse, um, gangs, um, knife crime, etc., um, are all things that tend to go on the up during a recession when things get a lot tougher. And I think that previously what we've been able to do is really spend a lot of time communicating with our clients to really understand their needs and adapting our services to, to make sure that we're in their area of need. I think this time it's it's very, very, very different. You've got some, so if you were to take like nursing homes, 
during recession, uh, recruiting care staff um, and unqualified staff is always easier. There is greater availability, more people looking for work and able to be trained up pretty easily into an unqualified role. So the sort of HCA roles and carer roles are, are easier to recruit. The I think there's a real concern I have for care agencies um, because their client being care home groups. First of all, the demand um, in those nursing homes and care homes has gone down dramatically. We've aware of care home groups that have 50% occupancy right now. Um, so their demand to use agency is, is minimal. And yet recruiting only permanent staff is, is very easy right now. So I think that's a particularly difficult sector going forward. And there seems to be constant changes. Um, what, what we've seen in, in the beginning of COVID and then where the demand is, and I think it is very much about having an organisation that could adapt at the beginning, it was very much about staffing up um, the Nightingale hospitals and existing hospitals, all frontline workforce. You would see the, the likes of, I don't know, speech and language therapists, dietitians, physios, you know, really not required at all. Um, mental health is something that was continuous um, requirement and is now increasing. Um, even substance misuse staff um, wasn't really required in about beginning of um, August, demand started to go up in substance misuse and mental health increasing. So I think I think it's it's changing times and you'll suddenly see that a lot of um, nurses haven't taken holidays. The need for frontline agency staff at, in August is actually lower than ever before. And although there were peaks when you were in February, March, April, um, it's gone down significantly. And so I, th I think it, it's a constant, and, and with COVID, everybody says you don't really know what's going to happen next. It makes it very different to a typical recession. But the same thing, I think, is required of a recruitment organisation to be prepared to adapt, and you have to adapt as, as things move. I think that's such an interesting context um, that one of the things that we tend to think about is the, the direct medical care and support that's been required during this time. So, um, you know, we've all stood in, on our doorsteps and clapped for carers and, and really meant that and, and had to, but had in our minds most of all um, the doctors and the nurses um, uh, in the front line and, and thinking about even virology and all of that side of it. But what's not always getting the same level of attention is the mental um, health care practitioners, um, those experts in addictions, as you say, th those people that are required to really help with the, the secondary consequences of a, of a situation like this, which is the, the change in how it's affected us all as, um, as human beings and our families and, um, and our networks. Um, and what you've come to is that being able to be prepared for that is is really hard because it's there's there's not a lot that teaches you of how to be um resilient um as a business when changes are always happening what have you found in terms of sanctuary personnel what's been really important to you during this time as a business there's lots of things we've learned from it and it's an incredibly sad time for everybody but i think i'm somebody just determined to try and find some positives and what we can learn as an organization what can make us better how we can support our clients and we've had so many conversations of to do different things that we don't normally do 
But in a time of crisis, you have to support that client. And I think if you're prepared to adapt and do things differently and you get positive results for your clients at a time of need, it's something they'll never forget. So for us, it's very much about being very, very adaptable. I think communication internally. You talk about, uh, for me, what's been really refreshing is actually getting sort of rolling up sleeves and getting closer to what's really happening, trying to stop so many meetings and trying to be more proactive as an organisation. Um, and just improve communication so it doesn't take so much time, but everybody knows what's going on. And so we, we're definitely, as I mentioned, that we've become closer as a, an organisation um, during a time of need. And we are adapting and you talk about sort of reflecting how things are changing. And, and you were talking about carers. Uh, actually, there's a, there's a huge error I feel really passionate about in regards to social workers. You know, on I think it was about twice during the whole of COVID, the social workers ever mentioned. And you've got teachers, police officers, nurses, all getting different pay rises. Social workers, no. And right now, who are we relying on? Referrals in children's services always peak in September when children go back to school. Very sadly, it's a a cycle that happens every year where children have had their longer period of time of not being seen. Now, that's going to be the longest period of time ever that those children have been seen, longer than any summer holiday. And on top of that, you've got the fact that it's just the extra issues and pressure that COVID has created in social dynamics. And so what we've seen in frontline services, in social work, so children's, the referral assessment in children's services, is cases going in that have been coming through in July and August. The most scary thing is that they are incredibly complex, that they are people that social services are not aware of and have never had any relationship with before. And that's very unusual. And again, heightens the, the fact that this isn't the same as any recession. We've got so many different pressures hitting at once. So local authorities right now are preparing themselves for huge referrals coming from, from schools in particular, as children go back to school. And, you know, it, it's, it's very, very, very difficult. We're asking those social workers to go on the front line, very much so. But it's almost like they're the fourth emergency service, but unfortunately that they're not one that's praised nearly enough as they should be that's it and that's just such a shame isn't it when we all know that that's going to be so fundamental particularly um as you say kids going back to school in september is going to it's going to present its challenges for families across the board but um for some of those that are in the households that need that support most that this is going to be the reaction to that and how we pick uh, pick people up is going to really matter i suppose from from that, what what is it that would be the most useful thing that a central government can do? Because there's you as um, recruiters uh, working in this field, experts providing a, a much needed support service to your clients. Um, what it, is there something in particular that you think a, a government officials could be looking at right now? I think there's a few things. I think the procurement is one thing that during COVID procurement is able to be. Uh, Push through more quickly, less expensive processes, still clear decision making taking place about who can provide what, 
but less of a box ticking exercise. Things that they couldn't afford to take three months, four months in a procurement exercise. And I think that's when you know you need something generally, particularly in health and social care, you need it today. And the quicker you have it, the better outcome it is for patient service users. So I think procurement's a big area of, that we need to sort of dissect and look and say, how can we move faster and quicker in the future and actually save central and local authorities money in, in the, what is a often a fairly laborious process. I know of scenarios where we have been involved in a procurement exercise that historically the council wanted to direct award as a duty of care to the children it wanted to protect. They then felt very nervous around procurement. Three and a half months later, they finished that procurement exercise. And ultimately, there were children at risk who weren't seen for a lot longer period of time. So I, I do think we can reflect on procurement and across health and social care. I think what I'd really like to see is it's all joining together, working together. And I think that compliance is a big area, you know, because of, uh, again, because of COVID, interviewing candidates face to face hasn't been able to happen. We know we've got all this modern technology. How can we work together? Surely the technology is there today. And I'm sure it is. And I, I just think it's about bringing it all together to enable faster, quicker, better, cheaper safeguarding. That way you would be speeding up the process for the result from the recruiter. You would be able to give greater certainty and compliance, but also save money. And if you save money in the recruitment process, then you know the recruitment sector can share that. Um, but at the moment, it's a very expensive process that's kind of just laid as being the recruiter's problem. And I think that if we work together to look at how we can automate a lot of that process and agree a sensible way forward, then, yeah, I think that would be to the benefit of everyone. I couldn't agree more. I mean, on a, a relatively simple scale, we've seen what's capable of being achieved by um, uh, making sure that DBS checks have gone through in um, through the online service system um, and things like right to work checks. Um, we've got an, an online service now. And it's amazing what's been able to be achieved really quickly um, using technology and that works brilliantly so the safeguarding is there so for us at the REC is a really important feature is learn some of the lessons of this and keep those things um so that so that's something that we're going to be um talking to government about um particularly home office and the DBS service about going forward I think your point on procurement is really well made James is that there's got to be opportunities for something that can be quite a long and laborious process and in many ways can cut out some of the SME providers out there, the suppliers, who simply just don't have the procurement teams and the procurement exercises to go through these long tendering processes. And there might be opportunities there for partnership as well, I think, in terms of working more with some of those who have a really good local, regional um, and sector-specific niche where they know uh, what they're doing, but they don't necessarily have the procurement bandwidth to get through this. Um, I think there's a lot to be learned from that. Also, one of the questions you mentioned earlier on was, you know, in, in central government, what can we say to them? Mm. 
And I think I think we've talked about for years how health and social care have separate budgets, why we get effectively bed blocking. It's all about people's motivations. You know, there, there are some brilliant programs that uh, early intervention programs that would save everybody knows in, in social care that if you're doing early intervention programs, uh, edge of care programs with, with young children, that you can change outcomes enormously. And it's a sort of invest to save. But actually, the outcomes can take up to 10 years to be able to see. So politically, it's not that attractive. And I think that, you know, what we've got to do is try and bring all budgets together. Because if you have um, somebody who spends their life in care, they cost huge amounts of money, but also it's not always the best outcome for that child. And so what can happen is a vulnerable child could go to a local authority and that social worker will do their job. They will make sure that child is safe. Sometimes that can mean placing that child, they may be looking to place them in emergency foster care, but it's not always there and there's been a real shortage over COVID. So they place them in residential where they're safe. What happens from there? That residential provider has a child in their home and their job is also to make that child safe. That child could cost a huge amount of money and spend the rest of their life in residential. Who's actually working and supporting that child to get out of residential, to have a better outcome? And the problem is, is this goes on further down the line. So if somebody, more likely, you know, if you can get somebody out of the care system, get them into a happy environment, a safe environment, one where they're able to contribute more and challenge them more. And you can get them later on into employment, apprenticeships, and they can break that cycle. But otherwise, you've got an awful lot of things that will start to hit, not just welfare, but also through to prison services, through to healthcare services, court, all sorts of things that if you don't have that early intervention, that support at a young age, you're never going to change those cycles. And if government could grab everybody's budget and look at it together and everybody had the same motivation, actually, health and social care are the biggest invest to save exercises that the whole country could ever put money into. And I believe what people have seen through COVID but actually, it's a good, you know, what they always care about is winning votes and health and social care. Yes, it's had some investment during COVID, but the future is looking absolutely frightening because of lack of investment. You paint quite a dark picture, but one where there's, it's about what we do in terms of how we recognise the, um, the time that we've been through and how there has been that collaborative effort. I think the other challenge that we often face from a political perspective, you just mentioned it, is it's all about the votes, is that is election cycles. So you're always faced with the spectre of a changing government or a changing personnel at the top, and it, and it does seem to, to matter in terms of the lobbying activities. And I know from uh, my experience of working with you and um, others in the, our health and social care group around the caps and controls in the NHS, you know, you're dealing with a, ch uh, a range of different ministers and uh, civil servants that are implementing this. And we've been faced with this since 2015. It's very, you know, it's a very particular part of um, 
the the work that we're doing around um, uh, the cost of agency work. But one of the features that we've also seen during the pandemic is about why it's important to think about your whole workforce. So whether it's social work, whether it's social care, um, health professionals on the front line, um, because there is a sense of there being a a disconnect between both the permanent and the temps uh, working forces. James, does that affect your sector so much in terms of how agency workers and temporary and interim contractors are are treated in in your space? It's sad. And it would be so nice to think. The the reality, I think the way people sometimes look at agency staff is a necessary evil. And agencies, during COVID, in a pandemic who was there to support them? Who was there to support the NHS? Everyone was the answer to that. And it's just, I think, with interims, what if, if you said, right, there are no agency workers um, allowed in the NHS, you would lose thousands and thousands of staff because it gives people a flexibility which is clearly attractive and a whole load of people would just leave the profession because they wouldn't have the ability to work in the same way. So what it does is at a time of need, you're bringing in people with great experience. And actually, it's a fantastic thing for people to have worked on different wards. It's a fantastic in different departments and see, gain different knowledge, look at different IT systems to be able to share their knowledge from one to another. Um, in local authorities, you know, people coming in and, and talking about whether it's a fostering department, whether it was running edge of care programs, whether it was a MASH team or a thorough assessment, learning from other authorities and sharing that. And that's what you want with agency staff, you know, whether it's maternity cover, whether it's um, sick cover, um, whether it's just a time which is going to happen now in social care, social workers in children's services, and then it'll be winter pressure and it will be OTs and it will be social workers. When that peak demand, it gives them the flexibility. So ultimately, it's definitely something that is required. But I just wish it was looked at as a, in a, po- a more positive way. And I think we should be reflecting on what's just happened. And hopefully, start. To, it just always feels that agencies, it's a sort of, it feels like central government um, sort of slightly taint them as a, as a necessary evil. And there hasn't always been the nicest things said about agencies and mm-hmm. i think they have been painted in a, an unfair light they are coordinating and working with some of the most valuable individuals who wouldn't be in the profession if it wasn't for those agencies they're working with those agencies because they're supporting them and safeguarding them prior to placing them in a place and their knowledge is invaluable it's not just a body turning up most interims have got a wealth of knowledge and can hit the ground running it's not newly qualified staff. These are people that can make a real difference. And at a time of need, you need people like that. I couldn't agree more. Um, Neil Carberry wrote an article for Health Service Journal, the HSJ, in July. And it just, and it spoke directly to what you're saying. It was about um, why we need to have agency staff in the NHS, in the care professions, and and how they need to be treated as part of the same team. I can't imagine many of us can picture a situation where a temp joins the business um, and and they're they're not provided with PPE. Can you imagine what it was like on the front line where there 
was a questions about this in during the pandemic. I, James, I think we could spend quite a long time um, talking about the the stresses and the strains and um, the the vitally important work that you guys have been doing. What do you what do you think the your you said already that um, uh, September is likely to see a big spike because of in the need for social work? But but how do you see the future of the sector? Do you see um, do you see any uh, I suppose silver linings in all of this? I, I think the silver linings. Um, I'm just hopeful about them. I hope that we can work closer together. I hope we can prepare ourselves for something like this happening in the future in a better way. And I think technology is, is technology and communication is something when I was talking about compliance and things earlier on. Um, you know, my biggest hope is, is more as a human being that we invest in health and social care. And it sounds all very doom and gloom, but I am really concerned that austerity is going to be like never before. And I think that's actually more costly. And it goes back to me saying it is the biggest invest-to-save exercise. And I say that as a, a human being, not as somebody who, who works in the sector in any way at all. I'd be prepared to invest. <laughs> it's, do you know what I mean? It's, it's the outcomes are so important. I do believe it's more costly for society. But learnings, there's got to be some positives. And as I say, yeah, technology is one, I think, with clients – uh, I think those relationships have become stronger because we've all worked at a time of, you know, you're normally it's all very official and you're in an office and you've got uh, half an hour to meet and suddenly you're on a Teams meeting with your client and they've got their children or their, you know, their dog or whatever. And it, it somehow um, creates a closer relationship that you're all really human beings and you all want the best outcomes for service users. Um, so I, I think, I think yeah, the positive, but I do feel personally closer to a lot of clients um and there's been all sorts of learning i think we can reflect on that i mean just i remember at easter um being asked by a client to set up a basically a nursing home an 80 bedded nursing home because at the time testing wasn't prevalent enough and at the same time you had People taking up hospital beds who perhaps had a hip operation, um, but because they'd been in hospital, um, care homes were terrified or nursing homes were terrified about letting them out of the hospital. So I remember even on Easter Day, I was trying to buy hospital beds, um, which is, you know, it's unusual. Um, but I know that particular client was incredibly grateful for the efforts and unusual hours and everything that we did. Um, so I think, yeah, positively, I think everybody's come out with stronger relationships with their clients, better understanding. I think we, we, we're we not quite at a stage to be able to reflect as the, the demands, I think, change. How we adapt when, if the winter pressures are hitting at the same time. Um, I like to be optimistic and think that well, we can all work together and, you know, we can beat this. And so far, um, I actually think it's really easy to criticise, isn't it? You pick up the paper each day and there's, there's a million stats out there, but it's not easy decisions the government's had to make. Um, I think just going forward, it's looking at it as one big budget, the UK economy, and looking after children, vulnerable adults, what's the best thing and what's the choice that society would like to make. 
and previously, you know, you talk about votes. It's amazing how all your potholes get, you know, they all, all get replaced just before the, the local elections. And they try and deliberately, obviously, our political system is all about doing the most popular thing at the time of being voted in. I like to think that as a nation, we are more aware of health and social care and how important it is. Um, and I'm hopeful that the government will decide to invest further. I think that's a fantastic place to to round off this conversation. Um, it it has to. Um, I think that the key point here is that that what we've learned from the last six months is that we have to have that investment and the coordinated action. Um, James, you made a really great case for for why that is so important and to think about the the long term rather than the short term. To that end, we've we've made a very a small step in terms of asking um, uh, NHS improvement for the data around the caps and controls um, that are on um, agencies and uh, to compare and contrast that with what the, the costs are from um, supplying via banks so that we have that freedom of information request has gone in and we hope to have that data in September because just getting the information is going to be all important and sharing it across the piece so that we know where the budgets are going and what the best yeah. use of resources is. And that's that's the key yeah. aim for us. And it's about partnership. It's understanding the resources and understanding how we can play our part as a good compliant recruiters, I think, in all of this. Yeah. And as, as you mentioned, there's new, there's new government departments. There's um, some new personnel involved. And I'm really hopeful that they will, when looking and asking questions around bank costs, around bank compliance, you know, who audits bank compliance? I don't believe anyone. I've asked the question of all different organisations. Mm. CQC don't audit the compliance of the bank when they inspect a hospital. So that's something where you've got to look at the accountability of that. But we should be working together on it. You know, we all want the same outcomes. And I think that it's also just looking at the actual costs. Why aren't people forthcoming with it? And that worries me. Because if you've got nothing to hide... You look at the real cost and, and you've got to say to yourself, look, surely there's some things that are best outsourced to specialists. With our track and trace, could Apple have done it? Could other, uh, there's other organizations out there as well that could have done it, who have already got technology solutions? Or should we start trying to create our own? And I know that's sort of going into criticism. I don't want to do that because I think the government, but there are times when you need specialists and agencies in health and social care live and breathe those communities and talking, creating relationships and supporting those individuals. And they do it at a scale as well. So when you've got loads and loads of different hospitals and different trusts with small departments running small banks, um, they're very expensive. They don't even have the technology that, that agencies have. Um, and so if you actually look at the true costs, I'm really certain and I hope that we get transparency on that. And that there's so many REC members who have been crying out. This, this has been over two years because we know and we've seen the amount of staff in supporting banks internally um, and believe that, that there are, you know, not saying it shouldn't have banks at all, but simply by paying more for bank staff and not allowing agency staff and putting caps on. All that's done is transfer spend into a less cost-effective organisation, whereas they could focus on other things and leave the specialists to support them, and it would be cheaper. 
Absolutely. And I think all we're saying is jointly here is that um, coming at it from very similar points of view is that we're, we're talking about best value for money and and it's about our taxpayers money it's about what we um it's about how we're putting the resources in the right place um but it's all in but fundamentally it's about patient care and better patient care james thank you so much it's been really good talking to you today i've um, thoroughly enjoyed the conversation um james if people wanted to find out a bit more about sanctuary personnel um is there a place that they should look in particular is there um what should they do um they certainly can go on to our our website sanctuarypersonnel.com um but um, you know i'm always open to having conversations with anybody in regards to health and social care really keen on innovation and technology um and really helping fellow organizations some of the smaller organizations that that, that don't always get treated in the in the best way by some and uh, yeah, just really keen to to hear from any members of the REC um, anything they want to share or support with. If I can, I'd be delighted. Great. Thank you very much, James. Um, and thank you, everybody, for listening to uh, this podcast. Um, obviously, if you've enjoyed this one, you can uh, listen to the other Talking Recruitment podcasts that are available via our website or via your uh, podcast apps. Uh, thank you. And we'll speak again soon. Thank you for listening. We hope you found this episode helpful. Head to our COVID-19 hub on www.rec.uk.com forward slash COVID-19 for the latest guidance on managing your business during these unprecedented times.